it's really my privilege to be able to introduce somebody to you who will be able to tell us more about euthanasia and what it's all about. And that's Professor Matthew Ogilvie. He's a native of New South Wales, holds a bachelor's, master's degrees from Sydney College of Divinity and a PhD in theology from the University of Sydney. Professor Ogilvie taught at the Australian Catholic University and the Catholic Institute of Sydney. During 2003, was a postdoctoral research fellow at Boston College. Between 2003 and 2009, he taught at the University of Dallas, where he also served as Director of Philosophy and Letters and Coordinator of the Online Education for the University School of Ministry. A number of publications reflecting his wide theological interests, which include systematic theology, religion, science, religion, and terrorism. Published his first book, in 2001. 2008, Professor Ogilvie was made an academic fellow of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, which enabled him to travel to Israel to study counter-terrorism. So beware. <laughs> in addition to his academic publications, Professor Ogilvie has engaged a variety of audiences in churches, schools, professional organizations, and in the mass media. He has also served as a consultant on the online education in Australia, North America, and the Middle East. In his spare time, Professor Ogilvie is a self-defense instructor, so beware again, <laughs> and a venomous snake catcher for WA Parks and Wildlife. I remember calling him one Sunday morning, Professor, somebody said there is a snake in their bedroom, help. He said, can you see it? No, sir, I'm not going near, but can you come quickly? <laughs> really my privilege to be able to introduce Professor Ogilvie to you this evening. I'm not sure what to make of Peter's introduction. Some of it's true. A strange combination of skills or a CV. Um, I've got to say that when my students find out I'm a certified self-defence instructor, um, someone usually says, well, don't commit plagiarism in his class. <laughs> As for the snakes, um, I, I, I do uh, catch venomous snakes. It's because I live near Herdsman Lake. Uh, yeah, we're laughing. We know more tiger snakes per square metre there than anywhere else in the world except for Karnak Island. And yet, you don't go to Karnak Island. So um, I was actually challenged by someone who, who thinks I'm not an image of what a theologian is supposed to be. And I said, H how's theology and the snakes connected? <laughs> and I just said, look, if I was there in the garden... It, thank you. Yeah, but I wasn't. So euthanasia. Um, but before I do that, I want to thank Mount Pleasant Baptist Church for a, a very warm welcome again. Um, it's, it's a great church. It's very active. And I thank them not just for having me here, but for holding this series, which has just been absolutely fantastic. When you pray... You need to be careful what you pray for because in dealing with this topic, I, I, I was just completely clueless. And I asked God at my at prayer, how could I address the issue of euthanasia for this presentation? 
The answer came a month or so ago when I took my son to see a specialist. Um, We were discussing pain relief and I mentioned something that I thought that was important and that is that I don't tolerate a wide range of pain medications. In fact, um, and I'm not trying to sort of milk sympathy here, um, but just say the fact that I have reactions so severe to um, common drugs for pain that I simply can't use them. And the reaction from the specialist was interesting. Instead of uh, sympathy and that sort of thing, his face lit up excitedly and he said, Matthew, you're a perfect candidate for euthanasia. Okay? Yeah. And he said, look, his exact words, when you get sick, we'll do it. And I'm glad you can laugh at this, but, you know... Now, my response was not fit for a church, okay? But when I calmed down, I'll let him know a few home truths. I pointed out, one, mate, I'm not terminally ill. Two, I'm not even sick right now. And three, I wasn't even his patient, okay? And yet here he was already recommending recommending me for euthanasia. And I told him, because sometimes I tell people, when I do get sick, I want a doctor who will fight for me all the way, all the way to the end. I don't want someone whose first instinct is, you're sick, here's the needle. So you can imagine how the conversation went. And I'm sure that some, sometime after, I, I, I thought I heard laughter from heaven and a voice say, Matthew, here's your answer. The answer was that euthanasia completely changes the doctor-patient relationship. Now, whether euthanasia is an option or if it's actively encouraged, the reality is that our relationship with our doctors will change. And in my opinion, it's not a change that's necessarily for the better. Where euthanasia is an option, you have to ask, is your doctor going to fight for you all the way or not. And that's what I thought was the voice of God asking me to think about euthanasia and share that idea with you. How does it affect your relationship with your doctor? I also have to say that the devil spoke to me um, indirectly and briefly and he said, mate, if you think euthanasia affects your relationship with your doctor, imagine how it's going to affect your relationship with your health insurance company. Yeah. We might find that last comment dark, ironic, or even funny. But as Mel Brooks said, comedy happens to other people. Tragedy happens to you. In America, the state of Oregon legislated euthanasia in 1997, and a number of other states followed. Now, when euthanasia is legalised, when it's promoted, it's presented as an option. A free choice. Um, Something for competent adults only. But inevitably, it becomes more than a choice and perhaps less optional. There are cases like that of Stephanie Packer, a lady who suffered chronic immune disease, and her doctors did the right thing. They said, look, at this stage, we want to switch you to a different chemotherapy drug, something that's going to help you. 
Her insurance company refused to pay for an expensive drug that would help her, but in, instead said they would pay for euthanasia with a copay of $1.20. Okay? That's, you know, I, I'm, look, I love the United States, I'm passionate about Texas, but there's a lot that we can learn from the American health system. Okay? There are similar cases around the United States. Um, a Dr. Brian Callister, a, a physician in Nevada, has complained of multiple cases in which insurance companies refused to cover life-saving treatments, but instead offered to help with euthanasia. Now, I'd like that to sink in. These are not terminally ill patients. These are patients who could survive with treatment, but instead of willingly paying for the treatment, the insurance companies try to encourage euthanasia. Now, I've cited cases in the United States, but the best-known legislatures that allow euthanasia are probably Belgium and the Netherlands. Now, one thing I want to make very clear, I'm not trying to demonise people who advocate for euthanasia. I do disagree with them, but I respect their positions. And people who advocate for euthanasia do it, as the Belgians and the Dutch did, for the very best of intentions. They are sincere in wanting euthanasia or promoting it only for people who are terminally ill, in unbearable pain, who are competent adults and who freely consent to euthanasia. That was the original plan. I can respect that position even if I disagree with it, but what is the concrete reality? In Belgium and the Netherlands, we've seen increasing cases of children being subject to euthanasia. Ch children as young as nine years old. And there are many, by reliable estimates, at least a thousand cases of year, a year of patients being euthanised without consent, without asking for it. It's reported in that part of the world we're seeing increasing euthanasia of people with psychiatric illness, people on the autism spectrum, people with addictions and victims of sexual abuse. And as I was researching this, this, this topic, perhaps the most disturbing report that I read was of an elderly woman who, and I quote here, fought for her life as her family held her down and a doctor forcibly euthanised her. Now, euthanasia advocates rightly argue for safeguards and informed consent. I, I suspect even the specialist who was so keen to euthanise me um, would have, and you know, I've, I've got to respect him, he, he would have wanted my, my consent, my agreement, um, you know, he, he would have waited until I was terminally ill and that sort of thing. And you have to respect that even if you disagree with it. But the question is, why are the safeguards routinely ignored? Why is involuntary euthanasia growing? My answer to that is, is that it's really not an issue with bioethics. It's actually a question of culture. Are we a culture of life? And this is where it, it, it hits hard. Are we a culture of life? Or as John Paul II asked, do we live subject to a culture of death? 
Now, if you're interested in life and death issues, I do recommend his writings on the issue, especially his encyclical, The Gospel of Life. Now, John Paul II had grave concerns about what he called the culture of death. He wrote as someone whose formative years were spent literally under the shadow of Auschwitz. It sensitised him greatly to the way that a culture of death, as he called it, affected the weak and powerless in our society. People like children, the elderly, immigrants, the poor, women and people from ethnic or religious minorities. And the culture of death is not just about death issues as such, but it's about the way we treat people with things like murder, genocide, abortion, euthanasia, mutilation, mind control, abject poverty, prostitution, slavery, and other forms of exploitation. And John Paul perceptively noted that the culture of death is concerned not with the poor and the powerless, but its primary concern is the standard of what is good for the wealthy and healthy for those who are powerful. The argument he made was that a person in need makes demands upon us and those demands can threaten the status of the rich. And it's tempting, instead of helping people and devoting resources to them, that we eliminate those who make such demands. And this culture of death is also marked by difficulty in accepting suffering. Now, the culture of death's response to suffering is not to overcome suffering, but to capitulate and eliminate the sufferer. Now, this sort of thing, and and, and forgive me for harping on about John Paul II, but I think he had his finger on the pulse here. He called this pity, and so he respected those who opted for euthanasia, but he said it's misguided pity, that instead what we're called to is authentic compassion. And, okay, look, I'm a Catholic theologian, so I have to give you a quick Latin lesson. Um, You know, forgive me for this. But what does compassion mean? It's from the Latin, which means cum. uh, So the Latin cum, which means with. And passio, which means suffer. You know, if you're passionate for someone, you suffer for them. So cum passio, compassion, doesn't mean feeling sorry for someone. It means joining them in solidarity with their suffering suffering with them and so the question is do we treat people with detached pity or do we join them in compassionate solidarity John Paul's observations to me are why I don't think that the ultimate answer to euthanasia is legislation or prohibition although things like that are valuable but the ultimate answer is a culture of life that stands up for the powerless powerless and the voiceless. This is a culture of life that sees us as called to the fullness of life, something that goes beyond the material and biological realm. Now, for people of faith, this means sharing in the life of God. And it's a part of Christian faith that we often forget, that we are called to hold human life as an infinite value. And the incomparable value of human life is something that makes every one of us equal. And this is one of the problems with the culture of death that I I think doesn't regard people as ultimately equal. A poor person or a suffering person's life is regarded 
is less valuable than a, a wealthy and healthy person's life. I sort of realised this. I don't know if um, you followed the debate about self-driving cars or autonomous vehicles. Um, you know, if you're interested in them, the, the RAC had that Intellibus out. Did any of you ride that? Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Um, it's funny, the, 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 the lady in charge of it was actually um, doing ethics. And I said, well, you know, what's ethics got to do with this? Then she told me about the, uh, the German studies when they, they get people to answer the question, well, OK, the autonomous car is driving itself. You, you, you've got a mother in a pram crossing the street and you've got, you know, a criminal or two criminals or three criminals. If the car has to hit one, who's it going to do? And the, some of the answers were interesting. A culture of life, though, um, regards everyone as equal. Because when you, look, when you compare people to each other, and this is something that I, I, I tell my foundational theology students, when they say, well, how can you say we're all equal? And I say, well, look, put, put it in perspective. Um, you know, I, I'm an average sort of middle-class guy. You know, I've, I've, I've got a mortgage, four children, and a dog to support. Okay? Yeah, we can relate. Um, compared to Bill Gates, we're not equal. Okay? He, he's a multi-gazillionaire. And all that. We're not equal. So if I compare myself to other humans, not equal. But what about compared to Almighty God? the infinite God, the transcendent God. Yeah, Bill and I are more or less equal there. And for, for my secular students, because I do have them, and, you know, they, they, they like to argue and I like to argue back, I said, well, if you don't believe in God, what about transcendent values like the law? You know, if we judge ourselves against each other, we're not equal. But if we're judged before the law, we are equal. And if you have a culture of life that values equality there, referring people not to each other, but to God or a higher value, then we find that we are indeed all equal and worthy of respect and care. So this is part of the answer to euthanasia. It's not ultimately in banning this or that procedure. Although I do think, personally, and, and, and Nick will speak with much more authority than I can as to why that's important. But beyond that, the answer is in fostering a culture of life that values every human person without comparison. A culture that values the human person at all times from womb to tomb. I want to share a few short ideas as I wind up. Um, the first is to ask... Why should doctors be the ones to administer euthanasia? You know, if it is legalised, why doctors? And I'm going to dob in a very good friend of mine, um, Professor Mark McKenna. He's, a, he's an eminent WA physician, and he was my boss at Notre Dame for some time, so he, he used to sort of try and keep me on a short leash. Last year, we were teaching medical ethics to our, 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 our students who want to become doctors, and we're discussing euthanasia... And I, yeah, I, I'm an academic, so I gave them a very abstract analysis of the role of the doctor in euthanasia. 
But Professor McKenna hit the nail on the head and he asked them, and imagine asking this of 100 medical students, well, if you're going to have it, why shouldn't it be your motor mechanic? And, yeah, the response was like, wow. And the medical students flipped out, but he was insistent. He said, look, a motor mechanic can rig up your car so that you die painlessly and cheaply. Okay? Yeah. Um, that I, was, I, I flipped out because I was getting my car serviced the next day. <laughs> but the medical students well, said, no, 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 no. You know, you don't know anything. I mean, this is just a guy with decades of experience in medicine. And he challenged them. They said, that is not the role of your mechanic. And he said, okay, but why should it be the role of your doctor? And they couldn't answer the question. And the question is, what should the doctor-patient relationship, what should that be? And again, how does euthanasia affect that? The next point is, and I've heard this so many times that I need to mention it, People who say, your church condemns people to unbearable suffering. I don't know if you've heard that. Um, People who say that you have to preserve life, you have to prolong life at all costs. Now, I will say, um, in places like the United States, unfortunately, that happens. Not for religious reasons, but I, I asked friends of mine who are doctors over there, it's because they're afraid of getting sued that if you don't do absolutely everything you can to prolong every vestige of life, that you'll be hit with a wrongful death suit. Now, the reality is, my church, like most, teaches that if a treatment is burdensome or futile, that you can ethically refuse it. You know, a lot of people don't know that, and it's perhaps important to to say that. Um, If a treatment doesn't sustain life if instead all the treatment does is prolong death, then you can refuse that burdensome treatment. But that relies on an important distinction. In euthanasia, the doctor is doing the killing. In refusing burdensome treatment and letting someone die, it's, it's the disease that's doing the killing, not us. There's also... A false dichotomy perceived between euthanasia and unbearable suffering. Now, I'm not a medical expert, so I asked around. And the best advice I got was again from Professor McKenna. And I'll quote him here. It would be very, very unusual that reasonable pain relief was not possible. And you can probably tell I've got a vested interest here because of what I spoke about before. And he said, look, even for a pain in the neck like you, Matthew something will be possible. But he reminded me that the real experts on this issue are the providers of palliative care. And if you're interested in this issue, as as you obviously are being here, go to Google and look up palliative care. The reality is, and I've I've witnessed this for myself, my my father-in-law passed on some time ago with a, a really, really nasty sort of cancer. Um, But the palliative care he got meant that he could die at home, which is what he wanted, and his suffering was minimised. Both his physical suffering and his emotional suffering 
And I, I, I've got to say, like, it, I, I said to the team, because it does take a team of the doctors, the nurses, um, the psychologists, you know, I, I don't know how you guys do it. Um, but they do, and they do an awesome job. So palliative care, palliative care works, but the problem is most acute care hospitals just don't have the expertise to provide palliative care in a way that we, we, we should. And that's why too many people suffer significantly. But in a good palliative care environment where staff treat people, not symptoms, where they take the time to get to know and monitor patients, where they can customise treatments, instead of an end that is loneliness and suffering, people experience an environment where they're valued and their suffering minimised. So I'm, I'm embarrassed. I mean, I live in an ivory tower. But the real experts are the palliative care people. People who, in, in the words of one healthcare leader recently said, our care for people who are sick, frail, aged or disabled is founded on love and respect for the inherent dignity of every human being. The problem is that not everyone in Australia has access to good palliative care. And ultimately, I think that is a failure of our healthcare systems and perhaps a political failure. I'm not pointing the, the finger at anyone in particular. But last Friday, and isn't that a long time ago in politics? <laughs> um, yeah. But health, uh, Catholic Healthcare Australia put out a press release that accused both major parties of, and I quote, ignoring the dying by failing to adequately fund palliative care services in their election promises. So I, I don't mean to put Nick on the spot, especially in the light of his, his great service to Parliament, but I will put him on the spot. But then, um, you know, if anything, if I've learned anything from the current election campaign... Uh, because my family and I have been involved with, with different candidates, is that every little bit makes a difference. And so my question to you is to challenge your elected representatives or your candidates and ask them whether and how they're investing your taxes in your end-of-life treatment. Because it's something people don't think about until it's too late. And, you know, it, you know, it'd be good. You know, next time you... I'm sorry to do this to you, Nick. But when you meet a politician, just ask them, what are you doing about this? Because the reality is, um, they love hearing from us. And that's something people don't do. So, yeah, I am getting political here. Now, whether it's about taxes, roads, the environment, or ethical issues... Good politicians, and there are great politicians on both sides, I've got to say that, um, value your feedback. So challenge them. Ladies and gentlemen, um, I appreciate you having me here tonight, especially the leaders and the community here of Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. It's an active, growing community, and I, I thank them for hosting events like this. Um, I'm grateful to be sharing a stage with Nick Goran, who has been a a sincere and passionate defender of human life. And I'm grateful to you all for being here 
and for listening and, I believe, contributing to the conversation during the Q&A. To conclude, though, I'd like to say that in life and death issues like euthanasia, it's my opinion that many current debates don't go to the really deep issues. They're focused on the surface, on the symptoms, so to speak. And so with regard to tonight's topic, ultimately it's not really about euthanasia, it's about culture. And it's the challenge to our society as to whether we are to be a culture of death, so to speak, or a culture of life. Thank you all. Wow. Really uh, powerful food for thought there. Thank you, sir. Okay, our next speaker is the Honourable Nick Oran, whose MLC was elected in 2008 to the 38th Parliament of Western Australia as the member for the South Met Metropolitan Region. His term in the Leg Legislative Council commenced on the 22nd of May 2009. He has since been re-elected in 2013 and 2017. Nick completed a double bachelor degree in Law and Commerce at Murdoch University and after graduating was admitted as a barrister and solicitor of the Supreme Court of Western Australia in December 2000. Nick was inspired to make the transition into politics because he saw an opportunity to positively affect the legislation he had spent years working with. On the 25th of March 2017, Nick was appointed Shadow Minister for Child Protection, Prevention of Family and Domestic Violence which sees him work in two portfolio areas close to his heart. Former Parliamentary Secretary for Mental Health and Child Protection, he has served on many parliamentary committees, including the Joint Standing Committee on End-of-Life Choices, which was tasked with inquiring into the reporting on the needs for laws in Western Australia to allow citizens to make informed decisions regarding their own end-of-life choices. Now, in the 40th Parliament, he continues to add his service as Deputy Chair of the Standing Committee on Legislation, which considers and reports to the Parliament on any bill referred by the Council. I really appreciate these two men because they're both at grassroots level and they speak on our behalf. And so, thank you so much for coming here tonight, Nick. It's uh, indeed wonderful to be here with you uh, this evening and uh, thank you to the church for putting this uh, fantastic event on. I understand there's been a series of weeks where you've been trying to tackle the big issues and uh, uh, this issue in particular for Western Australia, there is uh, uh, perhaps no bigger issue currently before the parliament. Now, let me just start by reminding you that every Western Australian is represented by seven members of parliament. So everybody here in the room tonight, in the state parliament, let's not confuse this with what's just happened on the weekend with the federal, federal election, uh, obviously a very important event on the weekend, but in, in respect to this particular issue, irrelevant. Every Western Australian is represented by one Member of Parliament in the lower house and six in the upper house. And the best thing that you can do in this debate 
over the course of the rest of this year is get to know by name your one representative in the lower house and the six representatives in the upper house. Now, most of you here tonight will not know who your seven members of parliament are that represent you, and let me tell you, that is normal. It is entirely normal, especially for us, the uh, unrecognisable ones in the upper house. If you're likely to know anyone, you might know someone in the lower house, but your responsibility, can I tell you, if you're passionate about this issue, is to find out who your seven representatives are between now and, and, and the next few months. Why? Because you are entitled, as Matthew's just said before, to challenge them in respect to this and every other issue. What is the point of having representatives representing you in the Parliament of Western Australia if they do not hear your voice? So where is this matter up at at the moment in Western Australia? In Western Australia, at the present time, the government has decided that it has appointed a ministerial expert panel. And that ministerial expert panel is currently undertaking consultation. Now, it's important for me to add here that the consultation that they are engaging in is very specific. It says... We want to hear from you, people of Western Australia, but we do not want to hear from you if you're against euthanasia. Now, can I be very frank with you and say to you that this consultation process is a sham. It is a process designed simply to deliver a particular outcome, and that outcome is a piece of legislation for the Parliament to consider in the uh, latter half of this year. Now, I understand that uh, the drafters in the Parliament are currently being put under extreme pressure to deliver a bill by August. So it is reasonable for us to assume that in August we will have a piece of legislation to deal with. At the moment, we're dealing with hypotheticals. In August, we will actually have the legislation before us and we can uh, then make a reasonable decision on it. But in the meantime, find out who your seven members are and... Preferably, begin a relationship with those seven members of parliament so that when the bill comes in in August, you're in a position then to go back to them and say, remember me when I contacted you in May or June of this year? I'm very concerned to find out that this bill has these particular things in it. I'd really like to sit down and have a discussion with you about it. Now, some of you might be terrified by the idea of going to uh, meet a member of parliament and uh, having a meeting with them. You don't need to go by yourself. You can go in a group of two or three people. Now, what I'd like to do this evening is just give you a couple of examples of arguments that you can raise uh, when you're discussing this matter with your Member of Parliament. Remember, they are the ones who will have the final say in this. It really does not matter what the media have to say about this matter. What matters is the position of the 95 Members of Parliament that will decide this. And in particular, the 35 voting members in the Legislative Council. So each of you will have six that represent you in the, in the Legislative Council. Uh, so what are the types of things that you might want to discuss with them? The single best thing that you can do when you're discussing this matter with a, is a, with a Member of Parliament is not to discuss the underlying principle here. It is very, very important for you to be informed of the underlying principles and I concur 100% with everything that Matthew has said uh, this, earlier this evening. 
However, when you're discussing the matter with the Member of Parliament, remember, you might be well dealing with a person who has in principle support for the idea of euthanasia. They may well have some sympathy for them, for it. And if you go in there and tell them that in every single instance euthanasia is wrong and that there is no place for assisted suicide, they are going to be deaf to your message. Um, And so it is important for you to have some uh, points to discuss with them that they are going to be willing to listen to. And even the most ardent supporter of assisted suicide and euthanasia will say to you, but there should be safeguards. And can I suggest to you that is where you should frame your discussion. Yes, you could have a discussion about uh, the value of life the inherent dignity of every Western Australian. You could have a discussion around the meaning of suffering. You could have a discussion about the impact and the radical change that this will have between the doctor-patient relationship. You could have a discussion on all of those things. I've written a 247-page minority report which deals with most of those issues. But the discussion that will have the most effect with the Member of Parliament is the discussion around safeguards. Now, the place that you might like to start with them is having a discussion with them on whether or not they agree with capital punishment. Now, in Western Australia, we don't, we don't have capital punishment in Western Australia. Several decades ago, it was removed from, from our system in the criminal justice system. And I want you to contemplate for a moment why that was. Why was it that several decades ago... Members of Parliament decided to remove capital punishment as one of the punishments available in our criminal justice system. The reason they did that is because the Members of Parliament were concerned about the possibility of an innocent person dying. In other words, they were concerned about wrongful deaths. They weren't concerned about the criminal who was genuinely guilty and would therefore die because of, uh, as a punishment for their crime. That wasn't what they were concerned about. They were concerned about the innocent person who was in jail inaccurately, inappropriately, and who would then die. Now, consider for a moment the level of safeguards that we have in our criminal justice system. If we had capital punishment in Western Australia again at the moment there would be a plethora of safeguards in place. In order for a person to be found guilty, first of all, there has to be a complaint. Once the complaint has been received, an independent body investigates that complaint. That independent body is the Western Australian Police Force. They might ask the person, the suspect, to come in and assist them with their inquiries. Did you know in Western Australia that that person does not need to speak to the police with the exception of providing their name and their address. Otherwise, they don't have to say a word. In addition, they are entitled as a matter of law to have a lawyer representing them during that process. And in Western Australia, we make sure, if you can't afford a lawyer, we're very generous in Western Australia, we will make sure that we fund that lawyer for that person so that there is no possibility during that investigation process when that independent investigator is looking into that investigation that this person might say or do something that incriminates them because they don't have to by law, plus they've got an expert in the law sitting there next to them that we, the taxpayer, fund. Now, after all of that, If the police decide that they have enough evidence to charge this person, 
They lay the charges. Do they then go and prosecute the case in the court? Not in Western Australia. We make sure we have another safeguard there. We ensure that the Director of Public Prosecutions, another independent body, they go and prosecute this case. They look at the evidence again and they make sure that there has been no possibility that the police have done the wrong thing. The the Director of Public Prosecutions is required to disclose all of the evidence to the accused, even evidence that might assist the accused... They have to do all of that. Now, during this trial process that the prosecutor is undertaking, did you know that in Western Australia, we will make sure that that person has a lawyer representing them? We will again pay, taxpayers will pay to ensure that there is somebody there to represent uh, that individual. Again, they don't need to provide any evidence during the course of the trial. Now, who makes the decision? We've already had an independent investigation undertaken by the Western Australian Police. We then have another independent body that looks into the uh, investigation again and decides to prosecute it. But who makes the decision? In these type of cases, because these are the most heinous crimes that we're talking about here that might lead to the death penalty, we then have a jury. A jury, independent people... Did you know that the accused and the prosecution can even object to the people that are on the, on the jury? They don't even have to have a reason. I don't like the look of that guy. He's off. These are the people who then make the decision. Now, throughout that whole process, we then have another independent individual, if you like an umpire. This person's called a judge. Now, this person is an expert in the law, even more expert than the lawyer that the taxpayer has funded for the accused and more expert than the prosecutor. And the job of that judge is to make sure that under no circumstances could anything possibly go wrong during this trial. The rules are going to be followed strictly. Now, after all of that, if the person's found guilty, you'd think that you'd be pretty sure that they must truly be guilty, that surely after all of that you wouldn't have a person wrongfully committing, uh, convicted of a crime, would you? Well, just in case, just in case we allow them to appeal. And during the appeal process, we again make sure with taxpayer money that we will fund a lawyer to carry that to appeal out for you. If you're still not satisfied after all of that, you could even try your luck in the High Court. Now, despite all of those safeguards... All of those safeguards, we say in Western Australia, we're not going to have capital punishment. Why? Because we're concerned about the possibility of one person wrongfully dying. We're concerned about the possibility of a, of a wrongful death. So we're obviously not that confident about our safeguards. Now, that was all those safeguards that I've just given you. Now, understand that when we look at the voluntary euthanasia and assisted suicide schemes that exist around the globe... There are not that many of them, but the ones that exist, the safeguards that they are talking about is two doctors agreeing that this euthanasia and assisted suicide should take place. Now, can I say, with the greatest respect to the proponents of euthanasia and assisted suicide, that there is a gulf between the safeguards that we have in our criminal justice system, which everyone says is not enough to justify capital punishment, and this pittance of a safeguard that we're going to have for assisted suicide and euthanasia. What could possibly go wrong? Now, 
I once made this argument and somebody said to me, well, you know, Nick, there is, of course, a very big difference between uh, assisted suicide regimes and uh, the argument you're raising about uh, capital punishment because, of course, one is voluntary and the other one is involuntary. Now, that is true. That is true. But this takes me to my second point. And this is the second thing that you might want to discuss with your Member of Parliament. Steering is the elephant in the room. Now, what do I mean by steering? I am very grateful to Matthew for the example that he gave earlier this evening. Now, in his particular case, uh, thankfully, we've got an individual who's very well educated a person who is able to speak for himself and push back on the doctor who was trying to steer him into making a particular decision. The doctor, who wasn't even his doctor as it so happens, was already champing at the bit to steer him down a particular path. Now if it's that easy for a doctor to do that to a learned professor... How much more could it be possible for someone to be steered into making a wrongful decision who may not have the confidence of a professor, who might not have the education of a professor, who might be more lonely than Matthew, who might be socially isolated, who might feel like they are a burden on their family? How easy would it for them to be steered into making a particular decision? So when we talk about voluntary euthanasia, let us be clear here that steering is the elephant in the room. We are not concerned, we are not concerned with the ultra-confident proponent of assisted suicide saying, I demand this right. I insist that I have the right to kill myself. They are not the people that we are concerned about in this debate. We are concerned about the vulnerable person who is going to be taken advantage of, who already feels as a result of the illness that they are experiencing that they are a burden on their family and that perhaps they have a duty to die. Or the person who doesn't properly understand all of their rights. Is there going to be... Remember in the criminal justice system we wanted to make sure that the person didn't do anything when they're asked a question by the police... They've got the lawyer next to them to say, well, you realise you don't need to answer that. Who's going to be the advocate sitting next to the patient while the doctor's busy steering them in that particular direction to say to them, you realise you don't need to do that. You realise that there are other options available to you. Has anyone ex explained to you that we have a thing called palliative care in Western Australia? Do, do you realise that if you have expertly practised specialist palliative care, they will be able to address the symptoms that you're currently experiencing? So when you have the conversations with the member of, members of parliament, I think it's very important to corral your conversation around the issue of safeguards. And in the end, the conclusion has to be that safeguards are a myth. Now, these are not simply theoretical arguments and discussions. We know from the few jurisdictions that have gone down this path that the end result is that casualties are guaranteed. 
there has been no jurisdiction that has as yet been able to implement a safe system of assisted suicide. What gives us the confidence that Western Australian legislators are so superior in intellect to every other set of legislators around the globe that they will be the first ever to create a safe system? If it's going to be that safe system, then perhaps they could test it out on the, uh, the individuals who have been found guilty of crimes. Maybe we'll test out how good their safeguards are there first before we start uh, testing it out on vulnerable Western Australians. Do you know that in Western Australia we have an elder abuse problem in our society? We have a, a, a serious disconnect... We have people who no longer respect their elders. In fact, when is it the last time that you would have heard somebody say, respect your elders? It's something that I heard plenty of times when I was growing up. But I think that that's a lost value in our society. There's a real problem with ageism in our society. I've just chaired a committee for 12 months in the parliament, the Select Committee into Elder Abuse, which has confirmed that we have got an elder abuse problem in our society and I would uh, say that if we legislate assisted suicide this is really a recipe for elder abuse one of the most significant forms of elder abuse is emotional and psychological elder abuse the two biggest forms are financial and psychological and emotional elder abuse you can say that to your members of parliament. It's a finding, a unanimous finding of a committee of the parliament that one of the most significant forms of elder abuse in Western Australia, not in Holland, Belgium, Oregon, Canada, in Western Australia is psychological and emotional elder abuse. And, that is, and that's why steering is the elephant in the room. Have a conversation with your member of parliament about your concern about steering and your lack of confidence in the ability of members of parliament respectfully to put together a framework that would ensure that there will not be any wrongful deaths in this, in this jurisdiction. So as I close, I simply ask you to, between now and August, when there will be a bill before the parliament, please get to know who your one lower house member is. Please get to know who your six upper house members are. It's very important you know who those seven people are. There is no point, if you're living south of the river, there's no point of you contacting one of the members representing uh, the people north of the river. Matthew's in, in Churchlands, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in Thornley. There, there's no point of us contacting each other's members of parliament. You must contact your representative. This is something practical that you can do. I can't do it for you. You have my absolute guarantee and commitment that I will fight this matter for as long as it takes in the Western Australian Parliament, but I need your help. And so I ask you to be familiar with who your seven representatives are, to get to know them, to, to let them know what your view is on this matter and start the relationship now. Don't leave it till August when there's a bill. Thank you very much. Look, I don't know about you, but I've really been challenged, really, really been challenged. Um, part of the you know, challenging issues of our time, it's easy to point a finger at others, but at the end of the day, we are responsible for, uh, for what we get. And so 
We're going to thank you so much to both, both of you. That was extremely profound and extremely helpful. Thank you. So, folk, welcome back. Um, some of you have submitted questions, uh, and so there's been a summary of these questions and uh, those that are quite common. And so, um, gentlemen, uh, one of the, the questions with reference to secular thinking, why is euthanasia not okay for us but okay for animals? Clearly, that's been answered. <laughs> Look, this is a, this is an issue that comes. This is a response that comes up often. This, this, and I could talk for an hour about this, but I'll just give you very, very quickly a response. Firstly, we're not animals; we're humans. Secondly, do you, do you realise? that palliative care is expensive. Euthanasia is cheap. So we offer euthanasia for animals simply because it's cheap. You would not, you would not, no one in society would justify the amount of money and resources that goes into palliative care for an animal. Uh, so that's why they, they, they terminate the life of a, of a horse, for example. Um, but for, for humans, there's something different. There's something inherently different about us, and that's why we're prepared to spend the money that it takes um, uh, to look after a person with palliative care. So uh, that, that'd be my quick two response. We're not animals, and secondly, it's, it's, there's actually an economic imperative that distinguishes between the two. Sure. Um, and I think this question is... I think you might have answered it as well. Would euthanasia be morally okay if all treatments are exhausted and palliative care is not available? But that's not the case here because, as you mentioned clearly, in WA we do have very good palliative care. And so... Yes, uh, uh, we do have very good palliative care, but there was a finding by the Joint Select Committee on End-of-Life Choices, which, uh, and this was one of the few... Uh, unanimous findings, uh, we said that access to palliative care in Western Australia is variable. Now, it is already variable in metropolitan Western Australia. The further that you get outside the metropolitan area, the more variable it becomes. So, it, we have palliative care in Western Australia. We have expertly practised palliative care in our state, but not all Western Australians are accessing it. And in fact, I went to a breakfast uh, yesterday, or earlier this week, the days have uh, disappeared on me, but uh, because it's National Palliative Care Week, and the presenter there said that the statistics are that 40% of patients who could benefit from palliative care are accessing it. So that means that 60% are, are, are not. Yeah, and so that is an issue. Yeah. Thank you. Folk, this is a more biblical question, and, and it's, um, is it against the Bible to euthanize yourself or someone else? But also, what biblical evidence is there for, for or against euthanasia? So I think you've, you've covered that, uh, Matthew, but with reference to biblical evidence, is there anything more direct? Well, it is this on? Um, you're asking a Catholic about the Bible. Um, so you're allowed to laugh at that. <laughs> I've, I've read it. You know. The, um, I'll, I'll be 
um, look, there are principles that we, we, we get from the Bible, you know, from, from Revelation. Uh, the reality is that in Jewish tradition, so, you know, I'm talking about the Old Testament here, um, you know, as Deuteronomy says, choose life. And um, suicide of any sort was um, just wrong, 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 absolutely wrong for the Jewish people. So, you know, there's a principle of biblical interpretation that if something is not mentioned, um, it may have been unthinkable. So, you, you, you know, when the, um, when, when the Romans were occupying Israel and, and they had the siege at Masada, um, you know, this prohibition against suicide was so strong that... Um, and, you know, I don't agree with this particular approach to things, but the guys killed each other and the last one that was left committed the sin of suicide... Um, that's not how I would have recommended they approach things. Um, but um, suicide, whether it's like what we call euthanasia or otherwise, you know, it just comes up, up under the general choose life and you won't kill. Um, and then, you know, the way that we think about this in like post-biblical times, if I could call it that, is, is applying that simple solution or that simple principle of say yes to life, no to killing. I'll just add um, one quick um, illustration. <clears throat> I'm sure most of you in the room are familiar with the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan. Now, think for a moment there about what's taking place. There is a person in distress on the side of the road. Now, that person, <clears throat> what did the Good Samaritan do in that situation? The Good Samaritan doesn't stone the person to death to put them out of their misery, to euthanise them, to assist them to, be, to suicide because they are concerned about the distress that that person is experiencing. Quite the opposite, the person goes and helps them at their own cost because, remember, palliative care is expensive and they looked after them and they made sure that the person was going to look after them and they said, I'll come back and give you more money if is necessary. And to me, that is the, the example that's been set out in the Bible. Absolutely beautiful. Uh, here is one that's probably ethical and moral. Yes, you could probably find effective pain relief for anything, but what if the pain relief makes the subject or the person a vegetable? And how is that ethical or reasonable? So it's almost the, the, what we might call in, in ethics the rule of double effect. Yeah, I'm, I'm not 100% what the questioner meant by um, making a person a vegetable, but um, I'm probably stealing a bit of Nick's thunder here. Um, expert palliative care doesn't do that to a person. Um, there are, you know, look, different people react differently to different drugs and that sort of thing. Um, palliative care is not just a doctor coming and giving you morphine every day. Um, any, anyone can do that. E even like a well-trained um, family member can do that. That's not palliative care. Palliative care is, is, is this whole team of people, and this is why, as Nick said, it's so expensive. People who pay attention to the specific needs of a patient. And, you know, the reality is that where it's practised badly by well-meaning non-professionals, yeah, you can wind up like that. But when it's done properly, you, you don't wind up like that. So that's, that's absolutely crucial. It's not about generalists having a crack at it but what we need is, is the specialists. 
Yeah, I, to I totally agree. I remember in the um, End of Life Choices Committee that we had Professor Doug Bridge come and appear before the committee and he told the story about a hospital room that he entered into and he saw this patient and the patient that he described, he, in fact he showed us some pictures, um, was, was so inflated, you know, I would sort of say almost blown up. If you imagine the blowing up of a balloon... This is what the person was, was like with their, you know, their skin sort of blowing out at, out of all any sense of proportion and he, and he was just so disturbed by the medical practitioners saying, what are you guys doing here? And then what they had been doing was pumping this person full of fluids and uh, you know, thinking that, well, well, we don't want them to you know, uh, be dehydrated and so on and so forth. So they were doing it out of you know, genuine good intent, but it was all the wrong practice. And so, you know, Doug, Professor Bridge, he came in and, uh, you know, he reversed all of that and, of course, what a massive difference that it makes. So, you know, unfortunately, sometimes pain relief is being provided um, incompetently and that's not what we're talking about here. Euthanasia can't be a solution because of incompetence. Yes. We're looking at gold standard palliative care practice and uh, that is good enough. I mean, the, the, the latter half of, of uh, the comment there was actually or part of this question is that surely it's easier, and, and I don't even want to go here, uh, it's easier because it will cost less on the taxpayer and we could invest that in uh, better ways. And yep. that is almost immoral and... Uh, but true. But true. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, we, we've had those sorts of discussions back... Um, Back in the day when the federal parliament was debating abortion, um, Bill, Bill Hayden, so this is how far back it was, um, I'm forgetting the member, one of the members from Queensland raised the issue, and, and Bill Hayden said, look, you know, you, you, you're talking about abortion as opposed to the cost of a single woman getting medical care through Medicare, the cost of the confinement the cost of childcare, education, and all that sort of thing. And he, he added up the figure um, to a whole lot of money. Then he said the alternative is the $67 from Medicare for an abortion. Now, that's when you start saying, well, you know, what's cheaper? If you start quantifying things in, in dollar terms, uh, you're going to wind up with that whole culture of death thing that, that I mentioned. Um, because the reality is, and you know, I, I, I ask folks, you know, when we have a debate about it, well, when every person has their price, what's yours? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's profound. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, another one um, with reference to how does one support somebody uh, who is thinking about uh, euthanasia? So how, should, how can we support... Uh, that particular person who's actually thinking about it. Now, it depends how you read this question. How do we support them? But how, how can we uh, try and convince them the other way? Or, or how does one offer some sort of care to a person thinking about euthanasia? Yeah, so the first the most important thing to understand for anybody in distress um, asking those kind of questions is, um, is to ask them why. Um, to find out what is going on um, with that particular individual. Now, if it is that the, the person um, is suffering some physical pain, 
then you know what to do. You get, make sure that they get referred to a specialist in palliative care. Please understand, a specialist in palliative care. When you uh, need back surgery, you don't go to your GP. You go and see an orthopaedic surgeon. You go and see an expert in the field. And it baffles me why we don't do the same when it comes to end of life. If someone is in serious pain distress, physical pain distress, they need to be referred to a specialist in palliative care. That's if the, the driver, the motivator for the question is, is pain. But more often than not... The evidence from the jurisdictions that have allowed this is that that's not the reason. The reason is existential distress. There's something else going on in that person's uh, life. And sometimes it can be some unresolved conflict with family members. There's there's something uh, that is distressing them but not in the physical sense. And so what do we do with, with, with people in that situation? We journey with them. I think that was Matthew's explanation of the Latin earlier. You know, we, we go on the journey with them um, and we take the time with them and we ask the questions. Um, Professor Harvey Chochanoff in, uh, in Canada, he has invented a practice called Dignity Therapy and uh, some of that simply has to do with uh, people at end of life writing their story. And what is going to be their legacy that they want to hand over to the next generation? Maybe it's something like that, that they don't, they don't feel like that they've, they've finished that particular part off. And once they've done that, they feel much more at peace. And reassuring that that person is not a burden on anybody else. Uh, it's often some of those words that we, we say, and then the person takes it serious and then goes, well, I'm a burden to you. Um, that, that's profound. Uh, what, what I really appreciated about your talk, Matthew, was you looked at things from a life perspective rather than a death perspective. And that's not often the way we look at euthanasia, you know, uh, and often the word quality of life. But there is the, the as you mentioned, both gentlemen mentioned uh, about palliative care and how we can try and give the person the best form of life rather than, you know, let them die well. Um, and with palliative care, I mean, what, what's really important, um, and this is building upon what, what Peter said and what the question was, uh, people need reassurance. Uh, in fact, a palliative care specialist I studied with years ago said in their experience when patients were reassured and confident of their treatment, they had to use less painkillers. Um, but the thing is, everyone's needs are very different. Um, so, you know, they may be worried about physical pain, they may be worried about financial burdens, they might worry about, you know, losing control of themselves and not having dignity. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll use myself as a bad example. I, I wasn't dying, of course, but um, uh, I, I had a dodgy meal on Qantas flying from LA to Sydney. And, um, yeah, it's a little bit embarrassing, but I got taken to hospital and all that. And I, 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 was, I was just, I went to the toilet and then I soiled myself all over the place. You know, this, this happens, you know, so thank you, Qantas. Um, and, you know, I was there all, you know, it's, it's something you don't do after the age of two years old. Okay, and I was like, oh, I'm horrible, I'm disgusting, I'm, I'm you know, there's no dignity left in me. Uh, but the doctor who's looking after me, she's actually a refugee from Bosnia. Um, and, you know, she, she sort of held my hand uh, after it was washed, of course. <laughs> and, you know, 
And she said, look, you know, I've seen much worse than this. And I forget what she said exactly, but I remember how she said it, that even though I was doing this horribly embarrassing thing, that I was still dignified and I was still valued. And, you know, this, this is what people who are, you know, as Nick said, with elder abuse, you know, back in the day, we showed respect to our elders uh, because we appreciated their wisdom and that sort of thing. But now, you know, we've got ageism and all that sort of thing. And, and people are, are afraid, well, I'm going to be in pain or I'm going to lose control or whatever. I won't have any dignity. And people need to be reassured that they are valued. Okay? What would you also said about the culture? Mm. You know, we're developing a culture where, where that's, uh, we're allowing that to take place. So hopefully this doesn't happen, but when euthanasia becomes legal in Australia, how should we as Christians handle it? very first thing I want to say about this is please don't give up already. I, um, I hear this repeatedly and I understand, understand why because the, the discourse in the media is all one way. And if that's the only thing that you'd listen to, you would understandably come to the conclusion that euthanasia is here to stay. At this breakfast that I attended the other day, there was a fantastic presentation by this expert in the field. She's responsible for the collection of all of the data around Australia in respect to palliative care. She very, very concisely set out the reasons for and the reasons against euthanasia. She ensured that the, the myth is dispelled with regard to whether palliative care can treat all of... Um, pain, she says, yes, we can do all of those things. She did all of that. But um, in the end, the only disappointing aspect for me with her presentation is this, she says, but I think we have to concede that euthanasia is here to stay. And I sat back and I thought, well, why do we need to do that? I've been through this debate before. In 2010, there was a bill before the Parliament and the bill was defeated 24 votes to 11. So why is it now that in 2019 that won't necessarily be the case? Now, it might not. I can't guarantee to you that the bill won't pass. But I don't want to... Uh, I'm very reluctant to hear people talking about when it's going to, to happen as if it is a fait accompli. Now, it is true, of course, that in Victoria... Um, euthanasia is about to uh, uh, commence and I would remind you that uh, for a short period of time in Australia we did have voluntary euthanasia in the Northern Territory but that's a thing of the past. It was also stopped. So that's my first point uh, but the second thing is look if it did how, how should you handle it? Well the same way that you handle um, laws in respect to everything else that happens in, in our state. So there will be other laws in Western Australia that I am sure that people in this room are not happy about and don't agree with. Um, and, and yet we go on, and if you're a Christian, you continue to uh, be a good witness because at the end of the day there's nothing more important than that. Um, so you will continue to do that. And if it is the case, then you will be all the more wanting to involve yourself uh, with people who might be contemplating this so that you might be able to steer them into the direction of care and compassion uh, rather than feeling obligated to make the other choice.
Beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, if euthanasia is okay, or, yeah, if euthanasia is okay if people want to die, if that is the case, surely it can be used as an alternative to end rather than um, care for their lives. And so if the person wants to die and has had enough, and you mentioned about something else happening existentially, uh, what if the person is in a good place and says, well, I've had my life, I've had enough, how would you handle a person like that? So, so if I understand the question, then we're talking about the person who's adamant that they want this. They're at the end of life and uh, uh, they definitely want to, to take this as an option. I, I do discuss this in my minority report. So let's, take for, um, let's assume that such individuals exist and there is no question that there would be a proportion. We're talking about a microscopic proportion of the population who get to that particular point in their life and they would then access the scheme. As I said uh, earlier in my presentation, these are not necessarily the people that we are concerned about. So in my uh, minority report, I talk about the idea of trading lives. So on the one hand, you've got a group of individuals who are terminally ill and they don't want to access euthanasia, but they feel pressured to do it because they feel like they're a pressure on their, they're a burden on their family, and so they are steered into that particular direction. So you've got a category of individuals who will die of a wrongful death. They're the casualties of this scheme. And on the other hand, you've got the super confident individuals who say, "Look, I've had enough. It's my life. It's my choice, and I and I demand this this right." Well, the question for legislators is, when you're weighing up those two, whose, whose rights trump the others? Does the super confident trump the one over here who is subject to a wrongful death and is a, is a casualty? Now, if that's ever the case, I think that we've got our lawmaking all wrong. Surely our lawmaking has to give the higher priority to, to, to the vulnerable. So, yes, there may be some people in that category, but with all due respect, we're talking about here people who are supposed to be and, and are diagnosed with a terminal illness. So in, in, in either case, death is going to be the outcome. Why are we in such a hurry to make sure these ones here are under pressure, uh, have euthanasia, just so that we can appease the demands of the superconfident? Um. My perspective on this is from having witnessed a suicide. Um, so the question I ask is, uh, why do we do our damnedest to prevent suicide of, of young, healthy people, but we're, we're allowing euthanasia? And, and um, th there's this place called The Gap in Sydney, which is a big suicide place, and we, we saw a girl, and unfortunately she went over before we could help. And... The thing that haunts me the most and, and got me looking at this was, um, you know, my son and I and another guy jumped the fence and went over the edge to try and see what was happening and guide in the rescue people. Uh, and the poor lady was, was she was swimming. She was, she was trying to survive. And that, that was just gut-wrenching. Um, so, you know, I got onto Google um, and did some research on people who regretted their suicide attempts. And, you know, the first guy was this uh, guy from San Francisco who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. 
And the interviewer said, well, when did you regret your decision? And he said, about five feet after I jumped. And there's, I mean, it's, it's hard to get accurate figures on this, but a huge, huge percentage of people who attempt suicide regret it. Um, and thank God they survive. So, you know, if someone's got their mind made up, um, maybe they haven't. Um, and, and again, the other thing, you know, that what it boils down to, you know, if it's okay, well, it's not okay. Um, and so why do we, you know, if, 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 if we've got a friend who, who comes up to us or even a person in the street, someone wanders into you know, the church and says, you know, I, I just want to end it all. You know, we throw every resource possible at stopping that. So why should it be different for old and sick people? I think uh, somebody once said that um, with reference to suicide, it's not that people want to die. They have no real reason to live. And so we as men and women of God, I think, can be a major um, factor in, in trying to, to help people. Um, this is quite a sensitive one, but can euthanasia be seen as a better alternative to assisted suicide as a family will not have to live with the guilt and pain of what they have helped with, even though it is what the family member wanted? All right, I'm going to assume that the questioner is talking about an assisted suicide uh, that might happen, an, an illegal assisted suicide, and distinguishing that from a legal euthanasia, uh, because there is some difference between the terminology euthanasia and assisted suicide. So I assume that that's what the question is talking about there. And so, therefore, would the legal regime be better because of the family involved? So you see how very quickly now we are shifting from being patient-focused to the focus then shifts on the, on the family and how the family feels. And uh, I would suggest that it, we should always be patient-focused. Um, one of my responsibilities at the moment is there's a Shadow Minister for Child Protection, so every time that we're looking at uh, legislation, I'm looking at, is this in the best interests of children? And so when it comes to this kind of scenario, well, what is in the best interests of the patient? So now we're starting to create structures and regimes to make sure that the family feels okay or that, or that they are protected. We need to go back to the underwriting reason here. If the patient is saying that they have had enough and that they want this, are we actually asking the right questions? Why is it? Do they feel pressured? Are they socially isolated? Are they lonely? This question talks about there being a family around. Do you know sometimes that people can have a lot of family around and still feel lonely? And so um, we, we really have to unpick and uh, all of those things. And to do that is timely. It, it takes a lot of time. Uh, it's not expedient. And uh, that can be taxing on carers, it can be tax taxing on, on, on family members, but I think at the end of the day we have to be patient-focused. Absolutely. Um, this is quite a beautiful one. This lady uh, agrees with you, Nick. She's, she's been a nurse for over 40 years and fully agrees with you with reference to steering is the elephant in the room. You know, and, uh, and that's where you said we can actually make a difference. Um, she also speaks about emotional and physical elder abuse, and she sees it. 
uh, as well. And then she's also concerned about the loneliness. And I think that uh, really contributes to people, um, you know, wanting to not live anymore. There's no real reason for that. Um, perhaps this one, many Christians state that if God is in control of when somebody dies, then, um, then does the voluntary assisted suicide matter? So it almost uh, goes without saying. But, um, yeah, if, if God is the one that, that decides, should, uh, why should this even be a topic? But clearly not everybody in the world believes in God. Um, and even Christians who believe in God uh, would be in support of euthanasia. So how, how would you answer that? Um, sounds to me like uh, the, uh, uh, the, the other two who are walking down the road, they see the person in distress and they just keep walking yeah. because I see you in distress there, but that's okay, God's got it under control, yep. so I don't need to worry about this. Um, but that wasn't yeah. the person who was commended for their actions. The one who was commended for their actions went over and provided assistance. Yeah. Do you want to say something? Um, look, when you're talking about Christian opinions, I think the principle is where two or three theologians are gathered, there are four or five different opinions. <laughs> um, but, look, if... if if your basic principle is that you know giving and taking life is the responsibility of God, then it's obviously wrong to to, to take life in that way. Um, and so you know whether you want to call it sin or the wrong thing or whatever, um, but that's something that unites the the, the Christian, the Jewish, and, and the Islamic traditions. Um, that suicide actually violates the will of God. Um, now that's that's great for an environment like this, um, but you know one of the reasons why I, I frame a lot of my stuff in, in secular terms is because I'm not just trying to preach to the choir, but folks out there who, who don't share that faith. But um, look, if, if you ask me, you know, ask a professor of theology a straightforward question, and as Peter knows, I'm, oh, that's a very complex issue. Uh, but look. In this case, it's a simple yes or no. Fuck, I think um, tonight has been extremely helpful. So thank you so, so much. Uh, uh, I appreciate, uh, Matthew, the way you've presented uh, the option of rather than death but life. Uh, Nick, I appreciate that I've been challenged. You live around the corner from me or certainly in my area, and so... You know, I want to try and make a difference as much as I possibly can, rather than this was a good talk. You know, Nick's got it all under control. But uh, that's not the case, so I'm challenged. Um, but uh, won't you help me in thanking these two gentlemen once again? <laughs> <laughs>